Hello team, it's Justin back with Consistency Breeds Growth Radio and we're here for another episode talking about nutrition, fitness and everything else related uh, where we chat with experts all around the world. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Jacob Glanville. He has his bachelor's in genetics university from the University of California, Berkeley, a PhD from Stanford. He was a principal scientist at Pfizer for several years. He is a father. He engineers immune medicines. He's the recipient of the Gates Foundation Grand Challenge, ending the pandemic threat. He's, I guess, most notably known for being on the Netflix docuseries, Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak, and recently sold his company, Distributed Bio, and started Cinevax, which is a spin-out therapeutic company that is essentially here to treat, cure, and eradicate the remaining complex pathogens of the 21st century. Uh, one of them known now as SARS-CoV-2, and we're going to chat with him today about a variety of different topics, one an important one being antibody therapy and vaccines. So, uh, Jake, h- how are things going today? They've been busy, but good. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Now, what takes up more of your time, uh, your daughter or is it your your other your businesses your other kids <laughs> yeah so i mean up until now up until a couple of days ago really i i kind of had three jobs right i was running the distributed bio organization i was organizing and running the spin out centivax and i was negotiating the acquisition to charles river laboratories so i'm certainly still busy right now but it feels like less work if, and it's very it feels very satisfying to have the technology of the CRL, and it feels very satisfying to be able to just focus on Cinevax. Um, I always make try make sure I have time to hang out with my daughter. She's 15 months right now, which is this really kind of a, it's a, every, honestly every part of it has been really thrilling to watch her brain develop and and the things she likes to do. And I try to make time to hang out with her and and provide enrichment activities every day. It also just keeps me grounded and reminds me what I'm fighting for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean. As you grow older and you're a business owner, you have uh, these other duties as a father, as a husband, things can get obviously really busy, all sort of in a time that's uh, totally uncertain, right? With COVID-19 going around and lockdowns and all these other things. So did you always think you would be a business owner? I mean, I I guess you started off as a scientist, right? As most of us do. And then what made you want to decide, hey, actually, I have an idea here where I actually need to start my own company. Yeah, with respect to being busy, I think in the coronavirus crisis, I think it was a blessing in disguise because I just became a father. And instead of traveling around the world all the time, I got to stay home mm-hmm. w- with my daughter and, and get to be around her all the time. So I, I've cherished that. And that's been a little bit of a highlight of the dumpster fire that has been 2020. <laughs> now, with respect to me and the business, so I um, I have kind of a complex family history. My parents are both Americans, but I grew up uh, on a hotel and a restaurant that they built in Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. Okay. And so, I, you know, I became a scientist, but before I was a scientist, I was watching my parents as small business owners learn how to, you know, run a restaurant and a, a set of bungalows as a hotel. And it was in the middle of a civil war. It's in a Mayan village and we have, you know, interesting tourists, colorful characters from around the world to come to visit. There's always something breaking. And I think people laugh about this, but I think it's really true. I, I learned a lot about how to run a business and be an entrepreneur from watching my parents do it, right? That a hotel and a restaurant's not actually that different from running a biotechnology company. You have inventory. Yeah. It's, you know, eggs and bacon instead of 
pipette tips, but the concept's the same. You need to make sure you don't run out of things in the storeroom. You have personnel. You need to figure out, get the right people, figure out what people are good at, be able to be a good judge of character and place them for success rather than trying to just, you know, wear away on some, someone for something they're inherently not good at, place them where they can be good and, and place teams where they have a good set of, you know, you're more generous than you need to be, but you have firm rules and people respond to that to make sure that you have people coming in through the door you have clients to make sure you're delivering products that people care about. So they tell their friends and they come back and to be able to handle problems when they pop up. So I watched my parents do that when I grew up, I've been hired and fired by my father multiple times in that process. And, and I took over the whole hotel and restaurant when I was 15 for about six months when my father got extremely sick with necrotizing vasculitis. And so I had kind of that early experience of running a business and it just it never seemed foreign to me or scary. And it, it really wasn't, I was always interested in genetics and immunogenetics uh, and computational math and computational science. So when I got to Berkeley, I dove into those things. And then after Berkeley, I was at Pfizer. And then while I was at Pfizer, when I was trying to decide what to do next, I launched Distributed Bio and applied for the PhD program at Stanford at the same time. And I figured one of the two would work out and they both did. So I just didn't sleep a lot for the next five years and I completed both. But I was never really, it, it was never concerning to me. And I think I had the, the sort of native entrepreneurial capacity training and I have my parents to thank for that. And so that, that came easily to me. And, and I think I also, I'm fascinated by what is possible, you know, the new types of technologies. And we are, I was lucky enough to be coming into this field in the golden age of biotechnology. So there, the sky's really the limit and creativity is a premium when you start realizing there's all these technologies that are coming online and you, it allows you the opportunity to begin to dream, what if? What if we could get rid of these ancient enemies that have infected us for centuries since the beginning of time? We actually have the tools to eradicate and, and eliminate them. What if we could get rid of uh, snake venom as a, as a problem across the earth? There's There's a capacity now with these new technologies to envision that, but you can't do that only as a scientist. You need to be able to have the capacity of, of generating a business because it's that's where the rubber meets the road to be able to make something new, figure out a business model where it actually initiates the self-continuation of money and, and value that makes that product emerge from the science and then be propagated throughout the world. And that's how you really change things. So that, that's really the, the background of it. I guess the long story short, I have my parents to thank. Yeah. Yeah. I think the intersection between science and business, you know, if you connect those two and you decide that it's what you want to do, you're going to wear a lot of hats for a while. So like you said, you have to do the branding, you have to do yeah. the marketing, you have to make sure that you get the funding, the appropriate funding for your project. And then you also have to empower your employees, uh, your interns and other people to make sure they're doing something that they actually want to do. Cause I mean, that's how your business is going to be successful, right? I mean, if you have a a passion in something and you're the only one that cares about it and no one else feels empowered at your place of work, whether it be your parents' business in Guatemala or distribute a bio or Cinevax, your business will fall to the to the ground, right? Yeah. So, I, I completely agree. I think sometimes there's like a I think there are bad habits that are taught in business school where they focus so much on how to cut a good deal. They they are thinking about the short term and not the long term. And my feeling is I referenced earlier about the idea of being a little bit more generous than you have to. I, I, that's smarter. That you, what you really want to do is you want to create a stable set of configurations where people continue to want to come back, and they, they don't just do one deal. And it's not like oh, winner takes all. You want to create 
an ecology of commerce, of cooperation, where people are excited to work with you again because they did really well the last time. Like in the village I grew up in, that's how the market works. If you go and try to rip people off, you'll, you'll sell one batch of tomatoes for more, but then people won't come back to you. And yep. so that's part of it is making sure you pay more than you need to, you set people up for success. And then there's also this concept of sort of dream superposition as you figure out what people really want and what they're really good at. And then if you can find a way to align their interests and dreams with that of yours and the organizations, then the magic really happens. And I, I think you see an example of that with Sarah Ives, who did remarkable work with that vaccine program. And when I realized her capacities and, and her hopes and dreams, and they aligned well with that program, I set her up to make sure she got a lot of credit and she was enabled to do what she wanted. And as a consequence, that program was successful. I think if I tried to be stingy or, you know, I tried to be greedy with it, I don't know if the program would have worked because she wouldn't have cared as much if, if, if she was not operating and beginning the credit that she full well deserved then we wouldn't have been able to achieve that positive outcome as one example. Yeah. Uh, I think employees have to feel like they're a part of it. You know, they, they really have to feel, like I said, empowered. And you're giving them the freedom to think about what it is that they want to do as they're also working on complex problems, I think is really important. And that happens with my business too in the nutrition space. Yeah. Like you know, I can go and try to make an unethical sale to help someone do something they might not want to do, whether it's lose weight or whatever it is, and I get them to sign up. But I'm not going to get any referrals from that person, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's all sort of related, just sort of different business models. So I definitely resonate uh, with you a lot. But all right, so from business to a little bit more science now. So obviously your companies are, uh, or company Cenevax is now primarily focused on antibody therapies for COVID-19, uh, as well as some universal vaccines and uh, creating a vaccine that has high efficacy. Uh, could you... Uh, provide a little bit of insight into some of the differences between, let's say, the influenza virus, which is commonly associated with that of COVID-19 as it pertains to mutation as well as vaccine efficacy. Sure. So I'll talk a little bit about the biology of influenza versus the biology of the novel coronavirus. And I'll talk about, so we're creating a broad spectrum vaccine for influenza. So we're very familiar with it, as are many people around the world. And I'll talk about to what degree that information, what we've learned about fighting influenza for decades, translates to what we can anticipate with the coronavirus. So both of these things, what they have in common is that they're viruses that are RNA-based and they infect the lungs. That's largely where the similarities begin to end. Yep. The, they're not genetically related. They're very distant. They look different. If you were to zoom into them with a super, super powerful electron microscope, they would both look like spheres with spikes on them, but the spikes are shaped differently. Mm -hmm. And the genetic code doesn't look like it resembles. They look very different. They have different numbers of genes. They're also different in that the coronavirus can get out of the lungs and it can infect the heart tissue. It can infect neurons. It can infect your liver, your intestines, and a bunch of other tissues. And that's why there's so many of these weird symptoms, including neurological disruption symptoms, uh, something that kind of resembles post-concussive syndrome or brain damage. And then also weird things like COVID toes, as well as the kinds of damage that it causes is quite different from influenza. You're more likely to get scarring in the lungs that have a longer recovery time or may, may, it may be permanent in some cases for some individuals. So that's some of the pathology. In terms of infection, they both are similar that they are largely transmitted through micro droplets in the air of someone who's coughing or sneezing or sometimes just breathing or talking loudly. And that needs to get inhaled. So neither one of these things seems like it's efficiently transmitted by food. You know, maybe someone could touch a surface and then pick their nose, but it seems like mostly it's breathing that's causing the transmission. The difference between the two is it seems like 
coronavirus is more transmissible, and it seems like it survives a little better in tiny droplets. They both infect multiple different species. So with influenza, it can infect pigs and humans, and there's different types of influenza that infect birds. But the zoonotic transmission, which means when it goes from one species to another, it's relatively constrained. So pig and human can transmit similar or even identical, in some case, viruses between them. But birds have a pretty different version of the influenza virus, and so it doesn't transmit that easily between humans and birds. It's it's pretty tough.、Mm -hmm. In contrast, this novel coronavirus seems like it can infect multiple different mammalian species. It can infect mink, as you may have heard from Denmark, and infects. Hamsters and infects dogs and cats. Although they seem like they don't really transmit it very efficiently, it seems like it might get into cattle, and certainly it infects humans.、Uh, and and there's a big swarm of coronaviruses that infect bats and chickens and all sorts of other creatures. This is a huge family of viruses, but this particular one seems like it's able to pretty easily infect multiple different types of of mammals. So those are the two, the differences. The last difference is that the influenza virus mutates faster. Than the novel coronavirus. That is an important distinction when it comes to basic questions like how long is this problem going to last. So, the influenza virus is an RNA virus. RNA is not that stable, and the influenza virus doesn't have an error correction mechanism, which means it sort of creates a decent number of mutations every year. That's why they have to create and design a new vaccine every year, and they have to design it eight months in advance. So they're kind of guessing what the virus is going to look like eight months in the future, and that's why sometimes they're wrong, and the vac the vaccine isn't a very good match. So what you're getting injected with is not actually the virus which is in circulation eight months into the future. Now with this novel coronavirus, it does have error correction mechanisms, so it mutates less frequently. But but that doesn't mean it doesn't mutate. All all of life, all genetic codes mutate. They, they're they're an imperfect copying mechanism, and that's really kind of to the power of biology because that enables evolution and mutation. Yeah. And so. In the case of this coronavirus, because it's so damn infectious, it's really gotten out and infected so many people. And every time you infect a new person, in that person you create hundreds of billions of copies of the virus. And every time you make a copy, there's a chance of creating a mutation. And so, as it infects more and more people, you have a greater and greater chance of mutations accumulating that are going to become a problem. So, I think people have asked me a lot recently about there's a set of first off a, a, a mutant strain that occurred in mink, and they started culling mink in Denmark. Then there, more recently, there's a mutant strain happening in the UK, and there's another one in South Africa, and those ones I've taken a look at, and they've they've accumulated quite a few mutations. Now, mutations can be neutral, which means they change the code, but they don't really change the behavior of the virus, or they can change the biology. And in the case of South African and and UK strains, it seems like mutations have caused the virus to become more infectious, not more lethal, as far as we can tell. Not less lethal, unfortunately, but they are making it significantly more infectious. It looks like the people who have these viruses are producing more of the virus in their lungs, and therefore they're breathing more of it out. That might be the mechanism. This is still not fully understood, and that becomes important to wrap up your question because it gets back to the question of: Is the coronavirus going to be able to be wiped out, or is this going to become seasonal like influenza? Right. And if that is really, it's a race. It's a race against our capacity to produce vaccines. An open question over if someone's infected or if someone gets a vaccine, how long do they have immunity for, and how rapidly does this thing mutate? So, in an ideal world, we have good immunity that lasts a long time after you get sick, and good immunity that lasts a long time after you get vaccinated, and you get a lot of people vaccinated. Once we get up above, definitely above sixty percent of the population, we don't know exactly what that number is. I'm estimating closer to seventy-five percent to eighty percent. Of the population gets vaccinated or gets sick and has immunity, then the virus starts petering out, 
Uh, and that's what we'd want. We want to be able to stamp this thing out because the risk is if you don't stamp it out, then there are not enough people get vaccinated or immunity starts waning and people get susceptible to reinfection, then the virus stays. It just keeps circulating and there's always new people for it to infect. And we have to deal with this as just the new normal of getting vaccinated and having therapies available for these people and, and, and you know wearing masks for a longer period of time. And, and nobody wants that, but that is a possible reality. And that's part of the reason why we try to advocate for vaccines and for good therapies and for taking aggressive measures to try to get rid of this thing. Uh, I don't want to oversimplify it. Like it's a big challenge because it's a big world and you have a lot of people who are concerned about the speed that the vaccines came out. And I'm happy to discuss the science around, around these vaccines. Um, but but if we don't if we don't do this and we don't work together aggressively, this is going to be like just like how we have the flu, we have the coronavirus. But unlike the flu, the coronavirus kills ten times as many people, and it's it's lethal enough and causes enough problems that it creates a medical crisis. Yeah, yeah, great answer. I um I commonly wonder about you know a lot of people talking about disappearing diseases like polio and things like that, and that's because we've gotten to a percentage of herd immunity via vaccines, right? And that needs to be the case as well with this novel coronavirus. If not, it'll continue to mutate. And like you said, some of these other strains that are coming out uh, are potentially more lethal uh, or infectious could be lurking across the world. Yeah. So, so far I've analyzed the UK strain and the, the South African strain. So I can pull, any one of you could pull these sequences up. They're shared everywhere. And I look at the structures and where the mutations are located on the spike protein and the reason I'm looking at the spike, which is they, they ring the outside of the virus. If you were to zoom in, the virus looks like a like a soccer ball with a bunch of spikes on the outside. And those evil looking spikes are what it uses to stab into your cells, tear them open using something called the ACE2 receptor and inject the genetic payload. So antibodies that block those spikes block the ability of the virus to infect you. Those are yeah. called neutralizing antibodies. And that's how these vaccines mostly work is that they cause your body to be exposed to the spike so you can make protein antibodies against the spike so that if you were infected by the virus, you'd have those antibodies waiting. So I, I looked at the spike and how mutant these, these new strains are. And so far, like there's eight mutated sites in the spike in the UK strain, but some of them are causing these, these things called deletions but that make it a little worse. But the spike is big. It's 1,200 amino acids. So even though there's eight mutations, the thing is like still 99% plus identical in the vaccine to in the UK strain. That tells me that when you get vaccinated with the normal vaccine, almost all of your antibodies you created after the vaccination are still going to bind to the spike of the UK strain. So you're okay. Got now, it. The, one, the one in the UK, it's sorry, the one in South Africa is a little bit more concerning because it's got it's got more mutations and it's got three mutations that are right in this, this special spot in the spike that's called the receptor binding domain or the RBD. That's the actual spot that goes and attaches to your ACE2 receptors on your cells. And it happens to have these three nefariously placed mutations that are all right around the location of the, the ACE2 binding site. And the, the reason that sucks is that you, what you want to do with a vaccine is produce antibodies that go bind onto that RBD and block it from binding the ACE2 receptor. And so those three mutations are going to cause some of your antibodies not to bind anymore, right where you want them to bind. Yeah. Now, I still think those vaccines are going to work. They might reduce the efficiency a little bit, but I still think the vaccines are effective, likely effective against the South African strain. But what the concern here is that we're less than a year in and we're starting to see escape strains that maybe make the vaccines less effective. And that means that over time, eventually there's going to be an escape strain that we're going to have to adjust the vaccine design for because the, the current vaccines are no longer effective, as is the case on our need to redesign influenza vaccines every year. And so that's the question is, can we, can we stamp this thing out before we get to that point?
Right. It's a race to see if we can outrun the mutation by getting people herd immunity via vaccines and, exactly. and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. And it's crazy that the mutations are in places that on the spike protein that sort of don't allow the original antibodies, whether whether it be from the vaccine that helped you create those antibodies or antibody therapy do the work it needs to do to eradicate the you know the disease yeah. in the body, right? So So what it's what's happening is it's selecting for mutations that alter the interface with ACE2, which means the virus is evolving to select for versions of the virus that have slightly adapted how they interact. It's basically learning how to infect us better, right? How to right. bind the ACE2 receptor a little better. But unfortunately, it's modifying that interface, but that's the exact interface you want to go block with your antibody. So it's just unfortunate that that's, that's where evolutionary pressure is causing this thing to diversify the site that we want to blockade. Yeah. Yeah. These adapt. I mean, it's trying to stay alive just like everyone else, right? So yep. it's, it's adapting to do that, um, which makes it you know, inordinately more difficult for us to uh, be able to optimize against it via vaccines or otherwise. So- Wow. Yeah. So I didn't know much about the South African strain that's that's uh, recently been uh, uncovered. So hopefully, you know, like you said, people that want to get the vaccine and are willing, uh, healthcare workers and others that are first in line and others after can start to get the vaccine so that we can reach that herd immunity number. I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the other potential treatments that are not vaccine related? And then we can get back to vaccines a little bit later about, you know, what, what the importance of them are specifically and how safe they really are. So what are some other potential uh, treatments besides vaccines that scientists are currently thinking about in regards to this uh, novel coronavirus? Sure. I'm happy to discuss the landscape of treatments. We're actually working on one. So I'll, I'll describe our specific uh, project. Yep. The, so the treatments for the coronavirus, and, and you do need them. Treatments are for when someone is already sick. Vaccines are great to prevent treatment, but they take five to eight weeks to kick in. So if someone's already sick, it's too late. You can't give someone a vaccine when they're already sick because by the time it would do them any damn good, they've already either recovered or died or had long-term health consequences. So in addition to vaccines, you need therapies for those who've gotten sick. In fact, I know there's, I think the word vaccine was more familiar to politicians at the beginning of 2020. And so they focused on it and I'm glad that they did. But as you can see right now, and I've been saying throughout the whole year, we could actually have vaccines and it does not solve the fundamental medical crisis. On the other hand, imagine that you had a therapy that made it no longer so scary to get sick anymore. That would downgrade the entire medical crisis to a manageable infectious disease, and then the world would go back to normal. So in my Mm. opinion, actually, effective therapies are even more important than vaccines. This is what we have done. It's actually not that common that we create a vaccine that eradicates a disease. It's much more common that we create therapies that make it no longer terrifying. That's what we did with HIV. Those are therapies we've made for tuberculosis. There are medicines we've created for multi-drug, you know, for for wound wound healing with the antibiotic revolution. Like this is normally what we do is we create therapies so that it downgrades a medical crisis to a manageable infectious disease. That's that's why this whole, we have this whole problem and why everyone's stuck at home and why the world sucks right now is because 10% of people get really sick and a percent of them, and then 1% of people die. And the ones who don't die can often have long ranging uh, medical condition problems, so long hauler issues that happen afterwards. And that, that's the, even that 1% who die and the 10% that go to hospitals, because this thing's so infectious, that has the capacity to overwhelm our hospital systems very quickly. So that's the problem here. If you have an effective therapy, the problem goes away. So here's where we are in terms of where therapies exist. I'm going to broadly divide them 
into two types of therapies representing the two stages of the disease. So in the early stage of the disease, that's where you're in the infectious stage. The virus has infected you. You feel bad because of your immune response initially to the virus. It actually makes you feel lousy. That's, that's how, why you feel sick in the beginning. It's not actually the virus so much. It's mostly your, the, like the, sore, the physical sore throat and the physical like lung pressure. That Some of that is directly from viral infection. Some of that's from inflammation. And then a lot of the feeling lousy is actually your cytokine, your immune response, freaking out against the virus. And, and that, during that period, you want your immune system to function well to fight the virus because you want to fend it off. And we know that a lot of people actually fend this thing off pretty well. I think, you know, being in good health, being younger, not ha having good exercise, not having uh, existing medical conditions, ha having good sunlight and vitamin D, some of these things help a little bit in that phase. But the punchline is during that period, you want your body to try to do its best job of fending yourself off. And that's where there's a lot of virus around and being able to tamp down on that virus and, and make medicines to block the virus and protect you could be helpful. In the second phase of the disease, once you're in a hospital setting, this is when the patients start degrading, you need to get oxygen. You're, you're actually, what's killing you at that point, the problem that's, that's damaging you isn't so much the virus, it's your body has gone absolutely haywire and you're starting to attack your own tissues. So this virus gets out of the lungs it can end up on your heart tissue. It can end up in on your neurons in your brain. It could end up in your in your intestines and and a whole bunch of other organs. And that systemic presence of virus causes your immune system to begin attacking the virus everywhere. And there seems to be some aspect of autoimmunity that begins to be induced. And there's inflammation. There's potential tissue damage. There's something called a cytokine storm, which is an inflammation overlo overload. And that ultimately is what kills patients. And for that reason, that requires a different set of medicines. By the time you're you're that far gone, you actually you're actually no longer attacking the virus directly. What we're trying to do is is try to quiet your immune system so that you don't overreact and so that the patient can at least survive. So those are the two stages. And here are the medicines that are available. So in that late stage, what we really have is a steroid. We give a steroid to those patients and that what that does is it actually just kind of attacks the immune system and suppresses it because at that point the immune system is what's killing you and you're just trying to stabilize the patient. That's proven somewhat effective, but it only works later on. You don't want to give the steroid in the early stage of the disease because it would make things worse because you'd kill off the immune system when you need it. It's yeah. only when, when, when you just need to go, you know what, give up, just, just shut everything down and let's try to have this patient not kill themselves with their own immune system. Sorry to be blunt, but that's what happens. Yeah. There's a couple other medicines that are being explored to try to suppress the cytokine storm. They're basically taking medicines from rheumatoid arthritis and autoimmune disease and cytokine release toxicity syndromes from other disorders like sepsis, and they're trying to apply it to those patients. Now, that's, so that's that stage. Then you have the, the earlier stage, like right when you got sick up until the point that your body starts wiping itself out, there what you want are antivirals. So you don't, you don't want to go give steroids early on or immunosuppressants. There's a danger to doing that because that's your best chance of your body to, you know, wiping this thing out itself. So you want to let the immune system do its job. And what you really want to do is slow down the virus as much as possible to give it a handicap so that the immune system can win that little balance of war. So there, there's been medicines like hydro, hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, and you've heard about a number of other ones. These things have had... I would say a complicated history of the science around them. So it does appear that um, remdesivir provides some help early on, but there's some controversies. You have seen similar controversies with hydroxychloroquine. And some of the confusion was that these, these medicines may help in one stage of the disease, but not the other stages. The other confusion is that none of these things is as effective as like an anti, you know, an antibiotic that's like super effective. These things might help a little bit, but they're not that effective.
But the purpose of all those medicines was to try to slow the virus directly. Now there are also antibody therapies, and these are this is the kind of medicine that my company's created, and there's some other companies who have also made antibody therapy. This is basically you isolating and engineering an antibody, just like your body would make after a vaccine, except this is ready in a tube, so you can inject it right away. Unlike a vaccine, where you're injecting pieces of the virus and you wait five to eight weeks for it to kick in, here you're injecting the antibody. So it's like a vaccine without the wait, and The earliest ones that they received a whole bunch of like five hundred million dollars or more of of of, comp- of country support were the Regeneron and the Lilly antibodies. Now those went in, and what you saw is that if they gave them to patients early, before they got hospitalized, they would help. So they would reduce the rate of people getting worse and had requiring hospitalization.、Um, unfortunately, when they tried to give them to people once they'd gotten into a hospital, it actually it didn't help, and it may have even made things worse. And what it looks like there is that those antibodies were flooding into the person's body, and if you give them early, they flood into the body. And at that point, early on, you have some anti- you have some virus like in your nose or a little bit in your lungs, and so the the antibodies go in, they stick all over the virus, and then they cause the immune system to kind of freak out. But it's freaking out locally, like so your your nose gets a little more inflamed, or you get a little bit more tissue inflammation on the lung sites that are infected. But you, but you want that, you want your body to go in and clear the thing out, so that's helpful. That same response was definitely not helpful when the person's in a hospital. At that point, the virus has gotten out of the lungs; it's in their heart tissue, it's in their brain, it's、yep. all over the body. And so, what you're causing, you're actually exacerbating a widespread problem, which is tissue attack and inflammation and cytokine storm. This is probably what happened. We we are, I say, this is still under investigation, but it looks like that's a, probably the explanation for why these medicines worked early, but they started having problems late. So. That's where my my therapy comes in. So we have engineered an antibody therapy. We did two things different with it. We work with the the Navy, the U.S. military, and a, and a number of other folks that help support us. And what I tried to do is two things. One was I decided back in March that I was concerned about this inflammation attack problem. So we've modified our antibodies so that they don't cause inflammation, they don't cause tissue attack, and they don't cause cytokine release syndrome exacerbation. So these things go in silently. They neutralize the virus. They stick on the spikes. But they don't. They just allow the virus to then be cleared out quietly without causing more inflammation. And I did that because I was expecting the problem that actually happened here, which is they're called effector functions. But the, that ability to recruit the immune system, I thought, could make things worse. So I turned that off on our antibodies. And then the other thing we did was I was anticipating that the best time to give an antibody is as early as possible. So we know from antibodies that have treated Ebola, with antibodies that treat rabies, where where it's These are amazing therapies. These antibodies. If you don't, if you don't have an antibody against rabies, you will die. Like nobody lives after getting rabies. If you get the antibody, everybody lives. With Ebola, fifty percent of people are dying with Ebola. If you give them the antibodies early enough, it's over ninety percent of people that are okay. So these are these are amazing therapies. But you want to give them as early as possible to have the best effect. It's it's easier to stamp out a match than to put out a forest fire. That's the principle, right? Yeah. The problem with antibodies is that normally. You give them as an IV, and I just looking into the space. I was like, "This is going to be so ridiculously inconvenient to try to have everybody go into a hospital and get an IV right when we have a medical crisis." And sure enough, that's what's happening with the antibody therapies: is they can't give them in hospitals, and then no doctors are prescribing them for their earlier patients because they're they're rationing them and they're they're like, you know what? Why don't you wait till you're really sick before you come in? Because we don't want to have if you're not that sick, we don't want to risk bringing you into a hospital where there might be more coronavirus around and having to take staff off of more urgent patients. So they're kind of triaging out the utility of the medicine and waiting till people are so sick that actually it doesn't do them as much good anymore. So for that reason, 
and and because the the navy was very interested in what we're doing i engineered our antibodies to be able to be super super stable so you can concentrate them into a, an injectable syringe so rather than having to go in and receive an infusion you could get an injection at a outpatient procedure at a hospital or mm -hmm. like at your doctor's office maybe even at a at a you know at a pharmacy and the idea is it's a small injection you can get it the first day you found out you're sick or as soon as you're starting to show symptoms or as soon as you found out you're you're infected even before you have symptoms and it's a smaller dose. It happens earlier. It, you don't have to go to a hospital to get it, and, and it avoids the degradation. And it's when it's most effective to stamp out the virus. So those are the two things that we've modified. Now, we're behind these other guys. So they, they got a, a whole bunch of money from government, and we haven't managed to shake the chain on, on government yet, although we have had support from the Navy and the Army and the military, and we're, we're very appreciative of that. that yeah. That's enabled the program. We're going into clinic in uh, in May, and that's and so our therapies would be expected to be available by essentially late summer. Yeah, that's that's great. I don't think you missed the boat by by any means. Unfortunately, no. You know, unfortunately, not enough people are getting vaccinated, so we have a continuing problem. Right, right. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with you there in regards to getting someone a therapy as opposed to just trying to vaccinate everyone. And like you said, sort of the the buzzword around around this whole thing has been vaccination, right? So that's what's been government, you know, funded, Operation Warp Speed, uh, some of these other things. So yeah, you just hit me with a bomb there. I think uh, like a lot of information, uh, in other words. Uh, but I do want to ask one question, because if I don't, my wife's going to kick my ass. So um, <laughs> she works in the hospital setting. She's, she's brilliant. And she keeps bringing up this, um, this idea of latent coronavirus, late, you, you know, latent tuberculosis, where people get sick later on in life because they've been infected with tuberculosis at some point in their life, right? Now, people with the novel coronavirus are experiencing symptoms well after that of being infected, right? So I'm wondering what it is that you know about that. And if, um, you know, obviously the therapies, like you said, specifically antibody therapies and remdesivir and some of these other therapies that are currently being used, uh, are great, but does it make a lot of sense for people to, or for the economy to c completely be open and have people get infected and just go ahead and get an intramuscular of the antibodies and, and hopefully not experience latent symptoms of coronavirus? Um, what, what's the complexity in all that? Sure. So I'll tell you what we know and what we don't know. So, you know, tuberculosis and HIV, they set up long-term residency in your body. So HIV is a retrovirus, so it actually goes in and it, it inserts itself into your genome. It has special enzymes to I do see. that. Yep. And then tuberculosis, it crawls into your lungs and it actually goes and lives inside the cells of your lungs. So it hides, it hides using your cell as a cloak against your own immune system. Uh, that makes it pretty difficult. It's not impossible, but it makes it difficult to, to kick the little, little devil out. The, the coronavirus is not either of those things. It's, a, it's an RNA virus. But here, here's what we know in some of the oddities, and I will say we don't know everything yet. What we do know is that it's an RNA virus. It gets in there, so it should just make copies of itself until the RNA degrades. Now, it, the RNA seems like it lasts an unusually long time. They could detect the presence of the RNA for, uh, you know, I've seen like 40, 50 days out after infection. That's weirdly long. You don't see that with like influenza. That leads me to wonder, because it has what's called a high tissue trophism, it can infect many different tissues. I, it makes me wonder whether it's it's not a retrovirus, but it is able to sit in. It just makes me wonder whether you have kind of like a slow burning fuse of a little bit of virus, which is just like occasionally popping up. If you had antibodies and you had good T cells, they should kind of go around the, the body and be able to stamp the damn thing out. But it seems like the RNA lasts a long time. It could be the case that every once in a while you have a cell that 
pops up some additional viral particles and it may be able to do surf, like cell cell contact transmission so that the, mm -hmm. the viruses actually aren't floating around in in the liquid i'm speculating here a little bit all, all we know is that you can pick up the you can detect the rna 40 50 days after and people i'll tell you scientists will say well that doesn't mean it's infectious anymore it just means you can still see the rna but my response to that is that seems like a long time for the RNA to be around. RNA typically degrades a lot faster than that. So that suggests to me that there is some mechanism of either preservation of the RNA longer than normal or some sort of continued low rate transmission. I, I could be wrong about that. Now, that so that could give rise to the idea that this thing is sort of sitting, you know, it's simmering uh, under the hood for a while before it eventually peters out. It, you should eventually eliminate it, but that is a question. And that, that was also a question a lot of people had when they saw these cases of someone who was reinfected. They're like, well, how do you know that person just wasn't, didn't have like a hidden latent period of infection and then they pop back up again. And right. I think that it's, we've, they've seen some cases where they proved that it wasn't that because the, the second infection was genetically different than the first. And they're arguing that those, those mutations didn't spontaneously come up in the patient, but, but there's other cases that you can't prove. And so it could be a mixture of those two things. Um, that said, I think a lot of the symptoms that people see for you know months afterwards, um, these are the long hauler symptoms. And there's there's a considerable proportion, a considerable proportion of individuals who have a lot of long range and, and pretty scary symptoms. And I I would actually like this is the reason I don't just say oh I'll just go get COVID right that I I'm like well I'm pretty young and healthy maybe I should just get infected so I don't have to wait for a vaccine to roll out. And I think a lot of especially healthy people might be lulled into thinking that way. Yeah. What I would encourage you all to do is to go up onto Facebook and log into like Survivor Core. This is a group of a huge number of people who have had COVID, they've recovered, and then now they're suffering these long-range symptoms that just won't go away. These things can be like headaches and depression, uh, greatly reduced lung capacity because of, of what's called honeycombing. It's a scarring tissue in the lungs. What looks like heart damage because of the, the effects of the virus. There are also more scary things like it looks like um, almost like a post-concussive syndrome where people have visual disturbances so mild hallucinations wow. depression significant obviously changes in taste and smell which return but there's other neurological abnormalities that suggest a kind of a long-range problem with the disease as well as like exhaustion and a number of other symptoms that to me resemble a bit of almost like a chronic fatigue syndrome the other one from a biological and immunological perspective these patients a number of these sorts of recovered patients they've identified autoantibodies uh, and a number of other things that appear it appears a, an emerging image and this is incomplete but it looks like the in the process of fighting this virus uh, it's it seems like trying to attack the virus in the process you're attacking a bunch of your own tissues and i think the immune system has a little bit of trouble separating those two things because these viruses are like a little burr they're super sticky and they bind really well on the ace2 receptor and and it's possible the immune system seems like it's making some mistakes and somehow it's getting dysregulated and it starts creating autoantibodies and it, it may create other types of self-attack. It could be the, the virus affecting those tissues. It could be the immune system attacking them. One way or the other, there's a bunch of long-range damage. And it, it, I don't think that's the virus anymore. I think that's the echo of the virus played out in your immune system, which mm -hmm. continues to um, cause either organ damage. You had either residual organ and tissue damage, or you have your immune system continuing to mess with you, kind of like an autoimmune disease. And I think that's what we're seeing there. That, But, but again, this is an evolving story. And at this point, it's not fully known. Yeah, I guess it depends on where like the virus had, had attacked when you did have it and things like that. Yeah, super it, interesting. Yeah, it gets in the nerves more than people think. I mean, that's part of the problem with, with people losing the sense of smell and taste. It's not like you're losing some taste buds, you're losing your entire sense of smell, which means it's climbing up the neurons that get in, into the 
you know, they climb up into the where, where the brain is located. And we do know that patients who've died from COVID, when they do autopsies, they find the, the, the brain has quite a bit of this virus in there. And a lot of the symptoms of the long haulers appear consistent with, with neurological damage. So that is not, in, like, you're going to hear other scientists who say, you know what, Jake, that could also just be cyto- like a consistent cytokine elevation. And there's some other symptoms that could be mm-hmm. consistent with it. But, but these are some of the facts that we're observing here. This virus can infect more tissues than flu, and that makes it scarier to me in my mind. And it's made me feel like there's no way I want to get this virus because I don't want to risk it. I, I want to go climb mountains and not be worried about my lungs. So that's why I'm, I'm going to get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy that it's essentially crossing the blood-brain barrier, right? Because it's fairly like a vir- as a virus, it's pretty large, right? You wouldn't think yep. that it would cl- cross the blood-brain barrier you might these. be able to climb up your neurons in your nasal cavity. So you have these like special set of neurons that reach out from your brain outside of the, the brain stem. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that go out to your face. They go to your sense of smell, your eyeballs, your taste. And it may be climbing up those neurons. I'm not a neurologist, so yeah. that I think I, I, I would defer to other experts on whether is it is it just hitting those neurons on the way into the brain? Is it actually getting into the brain? That part, it's unclear to me. Yeah. So to, to summarize, essentially, you know, everyone that, that's capable should be getting the vaccine so that we can get closer to herd immunity. And we're not, uh, you know, in this position where the virus is constantly mutating and we have to deal with this for, you know, decades upon decades. Uh, and then there should be other therapies like the one that you're developing antibody therapies where, you know, people that are just in the inboarding of getting sick can get an intramuscular shot uh, of antibodies, which have been developed to, you know, um, essentially, uh, you know, get rid of the, the novel coronavirus within, within the body. I guess the one, one big reason to do that is a lot of people that end up with their coronavirus, they can they can actually provide some of their antibodies themselves because they have antibodies, right? Because they have been infected, but not enough people are going to be able to do that for, for us to, um, to, you know, potentially have enough treatment for everyone. And then obviously, like you said, you've made manipulations to the antibodies over in your laboratory to downregulate some of those symptoms. That's right. Yeah. So I think the convalescent plasma approach, it's attractive and it appears like it could be effective early on, but again, it's the problem that it's kind of a precious resource, but you can't apply it once in a hospital setting. It doesn't help in the hospital setting. You yeah. have to give it really early. And the problem is it's time consuming and precious to extract the plasma. And then you're having to give it in the, the preventative market. You want to make a whole bunch of doses at a lower dose that you can offer easily. And, and that's the current antibody therapies, including convalescent plasma, aren't a good match. That's That's why... I think they can help, but the problem is they always want to save them for the worst patients, but by, that doesn't help the worst patients and it might even hurt them. You need to have effector function muted, muted antibodies you can give early on. The other thing we did with our antibody is we use something called the Zincor half-life extension mutations so that that single injection of antibodies will give you about eight to 10 weeks of protection. And that, that means that to your, to your wife's point, it provides your body with systemic immunity for a longer period than the, the virus could be floating around causing any sort of mayhem. So that, yep. that, we thought that was definitely well worth it to just provide one shot, provide extended protection. Our other thinking there was that there's some individuals that just aren't going to respond well to a vaccine. The, if you're immunocompromised or uh, the elderly tend to not respond as well to vaccines. And so it's it's better to have something you could give them that could last multiple months of protection. Although that said, um, I underestimated how effective these RNA vaccines are. Like They're looking at like they're about 95% effective, which is that in the vaccine world, that is a great success. That's yeah. very good. Yeah, compared to the flu, right, which is like around 40-ish, 50%, yeah, depending 40 on what to year 60. it is. Yeah, 40 to 60. On a good year, you get 60. And a part of that is that 
the flu vaccine is never a perfect match to the virus. Right. And so that's, that's part of the, the underlying problem. And people, there's this weird being repeatedly infected and exposed over years causes a, a weird kind of programming of the immune system that causes from the immune system from immune, it comes like immunology from the past ends up influencing how you respond to the vaccine currently. And sometimes that can work against you. It's called imprinting or immune, immunological or original antigenic sin. And that that's a problem that we have with, the flu that seems like it's probably less of a problem here with the coronavirus. There are these other, there are these four coronaviruses that cause basically like the common cold. They're extremely distant from this current coronavirus, but it's possible that some of our T cell memory and even some of our antibodies might like a little bit re respond to the yeah. novel coronavirus using some of that immunological memory from those common cold coronaviruses. Right. Excellent. Excellent. I, I do want to uh, shift gears here into uh, like you mentioned before, some of the efficacy of the vaccine and, and why people should think about getting. I think one big myth that's running around that's pretty popular, popular at least on my Facebook, is uh, I love how I'm referencing Facebook <laughs> for where for how people think about the world. But uh, anyway, people are like, why would I get a vaccine vaccine for a virus that only kills ninety nine point nine five percent of people, or or not the other people, way. right? The other way around. So could, could you talk a little bit about that, that misconception when it yeah, comes sure. to the vaccine? So there's, there's a couple layers to that. First off, I, I see a number which is incorrect everywhere. It kills about 1% of, of people yeah. who get infected. So I think people have, I think, I I don't know exactly how this, there's this other number that gets quoted to me from like folks. And I, I think that number counts all the people who haven't even been infected yet. But like it, this thing kills, this thing hospitalizes about 10% and kills about a 10th of them. So about 1%. If you're, if you're in a hospital with this thing, you're in trouble. If you're intubated, you're in deep trouble. So that's the whole problem is that, that that is 10 times worse than influenza. Influenza kills about one in a thousand of people who are infected. This thing's killing a, a one in a hundred. That's, that's, that's the difference between putting up with this, which frankly, I don't think we should put up with flu every year either, versus having to shut down society. So that, that said, that number definitely is biased towards the elderly, the people with you know, pre-existing medical conditions right. and so forth. So I, I, I've definitely heard buddies of mine who are like in their twenties and they're like, why should I care? It's not, it's like very unlikely to affect me. And so here, here's my response to that. First off, it's not a guarantee that you're okay. People in their twenties have died too. And even if you don't die, the bigger risk is that you could have uh, long-term lung damage. So buddy, one of my buddies was like, oh, I'm just going to let myself get infected because then I'll be immune. It'll be like a free vaccine. And then I can go on mountain on hiking. And I, that, that she changed her mind because when she was reading about the lung damage, where she's like, wait, this could interfere with my, my ability to exercise and my health and, and fitness is very important to me. So the second consideration is that it's, if you are getting sick, you may, you may get sick and not realize it and still infect other people around you. It's right. called silent transmission. So I think you just need to decide, like, do you like your grandma? Do you like your parents? Cause like, if if you, you know, if you like them, then you need to think about them too, because you could be transmitting. It's really the same considerations around like, STIs, frankly, like you should, you need to apply the same set of considerations to other people that you'd apply on making, maintaining, you know, STI health and consider the same thing. Like if you don't show the symptoms, you still need to think about others around you who could be effective. That's, that's the best way I would communicate that. And the argument for, for why you should get vaccinated. The other reason I talk about is the upside. Imagine you're vaccinated. Now you don't have to worry about this thing anymore. And you can go out, you can hang out with people. You're not going to get your friends sick. You're not going to get sick. It's going to give you a, an immense peace of mind that I think is gonna be worth it. And then with respect to the vaccines, these RNA vaccines look really safe. They're 95% effective. I'll tell you, you're gonna feel lousy the day after you take them. Like three quarters of people have symptoms. You, you uh, 
you can feel like some bone aches, you could feel like you have a headache, you maybe have a fever, you don't you don't feel good. If you're into fitness, you're used to suffering a little bit to get gains, and that's how you should think about this vaccine. So I'm I'm going into this being like, yeah, I'll feel lousy the day after. Great, that's much better than COVID. And I think that's the attitude you should take to it. And then after you get the vaccine, I'm I'm looking forward to it because then I don't have to worry about this anymore. And I can I can go go ahead with my life and and hang out with people that I miss and I don't worry about infecting others or myself being infected. Right. Yeah, I think that that definitely covers the uh, natural immunity myth. And, and so I'd rather have natural immunity to COVID-19. It's these uh, these repercussions later on and then the potential that you get it and don't know about it and you potentially give yeah. it to other people that, um, you know, are either have cancer. I mean, the, at least the numbers I've seen are consistent. What you said, there was a meta-analysis done. It seems like it's about 0.8 to 1%. There was some variation of people that die that actually get yeah. coronavirus. So if you get coronavirus, you have a one in hundred chance of dying. And then it's upwards of 15 to 20% if you have any of those other potential comorbidities like obesity, heart disease, et cetera. Right. And with 50, 40 to 50% of the U.S. population being obese and 20% of the a little less than 20%, about 17% of kids from age 10 to 17 being obese. I mean, if you're in that category, I think I would be frightened. Uh, quite yeah. frankly, I am frightened for myself and to get it to give it to someone else, more or less, right for, for the yeah. long term damage perspective, and then give to give it to someone that is taking all the necessary precautions and might have me in their bubble, for example. Yeah. Well, here's the other way to think about it also is like, imagine that nobody in their 20s decided, let's say that people in their 20s said, you know, that my risk is so low, I'm just going to put up with it, right? It's just like people ride motorcycles. They're like, well, I'm not going to be the one that crashes. So the problem with that is that if nobody in their 20s takes the vaccine, then we're not going to get rid of this damn virus. This thing's endemic. It's just going to keep circulating and circulating. And, and imagine what governments are going to do. If this virus is still endemic, you may not be the one who gets sick, but they know other people are. They know the hospital systems are still going to be impacted. That means society is still going to suck. So I yeah. think if you if you like to go to Hawaii, if you like to go to Coachella, yeah. get the damn vaccine. That's easy. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other misconception, I guess, people don't know what's in the vaccine. So as you know, an immunologist expert, you know, around the computations, around uh, these types of things, as well as being having scientists on your team uh, that build out vaccines, right? What what can you say about the safety overall sure. of, of these vaccines? Sure. I'll, I'll tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's pretty good, but I'll, I'll try to be just blunt and share everything that I know. Yep. So the RNA, first off, there's different vaccines. I'm going to talk mostly about the RNA vaccines. That's the one from Pfizer, uh, BioNTech, and that's the one from Moderna. They're, they're very similar technologies, and they have very similar profiles of effectiveness. They are very similar composition of what they're made out of. You can kind of think about them as almost the same vaccine. They even have the same set of side effects. So these vaccines, I've seen definitely some weird stuff online, like, oh, it causes infertility. And that's just a hoax. They're describing a gene, a human gene that's not in the vaccine. So it does not cause infertility. They were describing, I saw stuff being like, oh, there's like green monkey cells in the vaccine and it's got mercury and all this stuff. It doesn't have any of that stuff. People are just being confused and weird. Yeah. Here's what these vaccines have. It's actually pretty simple stuff. It's got RNA. That's genetic information. You have you have RNA in every one of your cells. So this is like RNA, and the RNA encodes the instructions for making the viral spike protein. Then, in order to deliver that to you, if you just gave if you just injected RNA, your body chews up RNA, so it would destroy it. So what they do is they package the RNA in in um, oily little particles. So they use something called cationic lipids and some other lip. They're lipids. They're these are oils. Fats. Yeah. They're fats. They're the kind of thing that rolls up to create the cell membrane. 
and those roll around the RNA and they protect it. There's also a little bit of cholesterol in there. It's not like it's not like eating an egg yolk. This is like an like ridiculously tiny amount of cholesterol, <laughs> yeah. but it, it goes in to stabilize the particles. It's the same way the cholesterol stabilizes your your cell membranes, by the way. And then they have something called PEG, which is uh, propylene glycol. Yes, PEG. I think that's what it is. And it, it what it does is it's uh, it serves to solubilize the these particles. So that's that's basically what's in here. They don't have any of these other crazy things. So what happens is you inject these little these little droplets. That each one has the RNA packaged inside of it, and then that fuses with the cells near where you did the injection. And then the RNA goes in those cells, and then your cells start making the spike protein. And then your body responds to that spike as though that cell had been infected. So that's the whole process. Your body um, gets an immune reaction to the R a bunch of RNA. It has a way of detecting that because that's, that feels like you're being infected with the virus. The, some of the lipids it responds to. Uh, and then also the body um, responds to the spike. Once, it start, once your cells start producing it, your, your body thinks that those cells are infected. And so th that's partially why you get an inflammation reaction at the, at the injection site. And why you start, you may feel lousy the next day, and that's 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 a good thing. That means your body's mounting an immune response. But these things are very safe. I'll tell you. Here are the the, the real concern. There are rare but real risks, and here's what they are. The first is that while it's rare, there have been some cases of people who um, have existing risk of anaphylaxis. So these are people who carry on an EpiPen because they they've had previous anaphylaxis problems. Um, there have been some cases of people after receiving this vaccine that they basically underwent an allergic reaction uh, to the point of anaphylaxis. And so for that reason, if you have pre-existing allergies, if you have a, an epi, like if you carry an EpiPen, you should notify the doctors when you receive the vaccine, and then they should monitor you for, for uh, maybe 30 minutes before you leave, just because they'll have all the materials there to manage. Now, most people haven't had that problem, but it has happened a couple times. So you should, you should let them know to protect yourself. And that's, that's partially that this is a strong immune reaction that you're getting out. And that's what, that's what they, they, I think they correctly decided, you know what, let's turn this vaccine up to 11. Yep. We'd rather make sure it works really well. And if people suffer a little bit, so be it. And that, I, I'm glad they made that choice. I, like if they'd made it like extra comfortable, but less effective, that doesn't, I would actually rather suffer a little bit, but get the good response. So, but, but that said, if, if you have anaphylaxis history, let them know. The other one is if you are under the age of 16, this vaccine is not authorized for you. That's just that they didn't test it on kids yet. So be aware of that. Yep. Um, the next one is if you um, have a serious autoimmune disease with a history of flare-ups after vaccines, talk to your doctor. So this would be someone with like multiple sclerosis who after a previous flu, you know, vaccine they've received historically, they've had a flare-up afterwards. It's mm -hmm. possible that the strong immune stimulation of the vaccine can induce an autoimmune flare-up. And so if that's the case, most of you still are going to want to get the vaccine, but you should talk to your doctor about that um, because you're, to, to, uh, and then take the vaccine in context of your specific medical uh, circumstance. The last category would be people who are thinking about getting pregnant or are actively pregnant or breastfeeding. So if you're breastfeeding, you can get vaccinated. There's no problem. And there's actually an advantage because your breast milk will, will offer antibodies to your, your baby. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about getting pregnant, I would recommend getting vaccinated first. And then like with even within a week after your second shot, then you can go ahead and attempt to conceive. So uh, that's just, if possible, it would be better just to just keep life simple and get vaccinated first and then get pregnant afterwards. If you are already pregnant, then this is a personal decision. You need to talk to a doctor. You need to balance the risk of getting SARS-CoV-2 uh, while pregnant versus the, the, the strong immune stimulation that could happen when you're pregnant. And I think that's a conversation you should discuss with your, your, your pediatrician and your doctor. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, 
as I become more and more detached from science, I've been out of graduate school for a while, I realize, and especially with other fields of science that I'm not necessarily, um, you know, are, are related to things that I studied when I was going uh, for my master's degree. I mean, it's magic. I mean, we've essentially these vaccines, um, and you may not think it's such because it's something that you've worked on <laughs> virtually your whole life, but from the outside looking in, it, it's it's magic. We've essentially tricked the body to thinking it has the, the essentially the coronavirus, so it, it's able to build up what it needs to to provide immunity. And scientists have worked really hard on this, and people, quite frankly, at least for me, when I see people writing stuff online that have no scientific background in any of these things, typing things online, it's almost a slap in the face to scientists in a way, which is extremely discouraging because I know how hard as a scientist for some time that, you know, you are are currently still working to develop things like this. So I definitely appreciate your perspective on everything related to the vaccine, the antibodies and stuff. I do want to talk about one more thing uh, because I think it's extremely important and I know that it uh, has a special place in your heart is how this has affected, disproportionately affected people of color, low socioeconomic status, uh, obese individuals, elderly. elderly. I know that you you were uh, born and raised in in Guatemala. You have at least some of your laboratory testing out in, in other places outside the U.S. So as it pertains to the flu and as it pertains even to the novel coronavirus, what are some of the mechanisms as to why some of these people are disproportionately affected by these viruses at a higher rate? Yeah. So I think there's, there's two things going on here. One is, yeah, why are certain groups being affected more? The socioeconomic interface with uh, infection and, and infectious disease. The second one is the socioeconomic and global intersection with with therapies and treatments and vaccines. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you like a, a story that's here in San Francisco, we we have an outbreak, but it's not evenly spread across everyone in the community. It's, it's disproportionately affecting the Hispanic community. And the reasons for that are that the, that, that community uh, is, let's say, underserved by medical attention. We don't do enough to translate the, you know, concerns and warnings into Spanish. And there's a proportion of the community that lives in, say, more more compact housing, and they're they're obliged to continue to coming into workspaces that tend to be more crowded and don't mm-hmm. have the luxury of maintaining people six feet apart. And these could right. be in, in, you know, a number of, of of service industry roles or or you know construction roles and things of that nature. So uh, there's been a, a bias where there are these high rates, but if you look at them across the city, you can literally do a one-for-one mapping of how much money is in a community and how much COVID there is. And like the, the rich have been wow. uh, disproportionately spared. They have less people in their homes and they interact. They have, to, they have to interact with less other people in their work. So I think that that little microcosm of San Francisco, I think that's, you know, played out globally. I also know, you know, in Guatemala, I, I stay in close contact. The challenge in Guatemala right now is that they're they're really the hospitals don't have good supporting PPE for the medical staff. So like I know that like there right. are hospitals in the, the town I grew up in and across the country where they don't want to see patients because the doctors like I'm not being paid enough for this and it's too much risk. And so there's almost been like a revolt by some of the doctors. And there's a question of like even for people who are sick, do I go in if there's nothing for me, right? And that's given rise to you know really a a ruthless calculation on the part of the nation where it's like well. Do we stay home or do we go work? Because starvation is also a health risk. And at a certain point, people say, you know what, I'm just going to go in and we're just going to keep working. And, and so it's it's 
de facto forcing a herd immunity approach because there is no other alternative. And and that is frustrating. And that's not unique to Guatemala. We know that that's happening in Chile. And and I think many other nations that, that have, uh, have undergone that by degree because they do not have the luxury of of being able to keep everyone at home or to use industries where telecommuting is, is an option. So that's part of the problem on how this thing's gonna gonna play out. The second part is the medicines. So you can see right away when vaccines became available, there's manufacturing considerations. And of course the question is who's gonna get it first? And what you saw was there was an effort by the European Union to try to create this a centralized authority where everyone would get access to a a single vaccine and they would distribute it equitably. I think it was a nice idea, except that I think their failure was that they wanted to go all work on a single vaccine rather than the, the truth is you have a benefit and there's a strength of market forces and of having multiple vaccine efforts going on simultaneously. But I did like their attempt to go do that and make it equitably distributed. Yeah. Whereas that's not what's happened for the, the Pfizer vaccine and the RNA and the Moderna vaccine, the other vaccines. It's kind of been a free for all for the rich countries have bullied their way in and they reserved a whole bunch of medicine early. And we're seeing that happen with the antibody therapies, we saw it happen with remdesivir, we saw it happen with hydroxychloroquine. So all of these medicines, you're, you are seeing that the, the wealthier countries are jumping to the front of the lines first. The, you know, to their credit, they also have subsidized the creation of more of these, these medicines, but they are going in and th those politicians right. have an incentive to try to claim it first. And that's a problem. I think you could be a psychopath and you still need to realize that that's a problem. So if you don't care about people at all, you still realize that that is stupid because until we have enough medicine for the whole world, right. this problem doesn't go away. If the, if the coronavirus has taught us one thing, it is that there is no such thing as coronavirus somewhere else. It started off in Wuhan and before we know it, it's all over the world. And it's just going to keep doing that. We need to stamp this out wherever it hides and we need to all bound together as a single humanity to accomplish that. And, and that, that's going to require subsidization of, of some nations by other nations in order to help accomplish that. And, but right now, unfortunately, and, and through, I would guess, much of 2021, there's going to be a, a battle by different nations to try to make sure that they're in the front of the line first. Right. I think there, there's a weird like hypocrisy and parallel with what you said, where there are people in the United States that, you know, for, for the most part, we've developed a lot of these therapies or been a huge uh, part in a lot of these therapies. And we have uh, some of these medicines available first. And then people are still asking for what third world country people have, which is herd immunity. They're mm -hmm. literally asking to just go back to work. They don't, they don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want to, they, they want what some of these third world countries have, this herd immunity, because they don't have access to it. It's that's very, very strange to me. I don't understand that entire situation. And I think it's pretty sad. And I, I'm really glad that you highlighted some of these, you know, how, how some people not only in the United States, but outside the US are and, and as it pertains to even the, the medicines available, right? Yeah, for this. I think we're what we're seeing here <laughs> in the United States and globally. First off, there's a lot of misinformation campaigns on the on the internet. I remember when the internet first came online, I remember thinking, my God, this is so wonderful. This means that I'll never have to be in a conversation again where people are disagreeing about nonsense, that we all have <laughs> access to the same truth. And I was I have never been so wrong because the internet, what it has done is it allowed the curdling of nonsense. So that you can always find someone who agrees with you, even if what you agree with is nonsense. And so it's, it's reinforced, I don't know, it, it, reinforced arbitrary mythologies of people who can gather together and come up with something that's that's silly which is frustrating and unfortunate yeah 
I think I just want to close this out by um, really, so obviously with CBG, we're, uh, we're a company that focuses primarily on improving people's health through nutrition and fitness. And I'm just wondering if you, you think that this pandemic is going to set, you know, we know how important nutrition and but vaccines aside, we know how important, you know, health uh, as it pertains to the immune system, micronutrients and getting in the appropriate number of calories and just overall health and exercise can, um, you know, decrease your risks of mortality, right? When it comes to this novel coronavirus. And I'm just wondering if you think the U.S. is going to, or the world in general, is going to set itself up for a new trajectory of uh, a little bit more maybe personal responsibility when it comes to health and fitness, when it comes in nutrition. And um, because are, are we, are we going to have to worry about this again? Will there be another pandemic like this in our lifetime? So, okay. Awesome question. So the answer is there going to be another pandemic. Yes. Absolutely, there will. We've had five pandemics of the last century just of influenza alone. That's not even including SARS or MERS that, that had outbroken, or Ebola that's outbroken multiple times, um, didn't fall a full pandemic. We had the HIV pandemic. We've had the polio pandemic. There's like The, the problem is that human history, uh, back to the beginning of time, you can go look at these terrifying excavation sites in China and in, in the Mayan regions of Tikal, and you can find these like what look like potential major outbreaks as scenarios. And and the history of humanity is punctuated by, by, by pandemia. It is the possibility now in the golden age of biotechnology that we can not just win this current myopic war, but we can win the forever war against these pathogens. That's going to take resolve and time and continued focus once this pandemic is hopefully resolved and it's not becoming endemic. So the answer is yes, there will be more pandemics. And the, the possibility is that now that there's more people and we travel more easily, that those pandemics will be more common and worse. So we, we need to win this war. Now, with respect to fitness, um, absolutely yes. So the health of the individual will impact your ability to fend off disease. Uh, we know that there's this wide range on how susceptible people are from this coronavirus with like ha- almost half of people don't even realize they're sick. And it does seem to be an association between how fit your body is and how well you're able to just fight the thing off from scratch. Like it's to the point that I started jogging more and I swim in, I swim in the Pacific Ocean every day. So it's cold water swimming <laughs> to increase my lung capacity. Yeah. And because the temperature change, I think, is good for, for mobilizing your, your white blood cells. Definitely. It's a yep. lymphocyte propagation. And I would encourage everyone to build up what's, what's called a lung reserve, which is try to, try to do jogging or some sort of uh, cardio exercise to create a better lung capacity. So we know that a lot of um, athletes don't even realize they're sick. And part of it, I suspect, is that they're in peak physical condition and they can put up with some lung damage or some lung inflection, inflammation without even really noticing it. We, we notice the flip side is uh, if you have comorbidity, it's like, it's like this virus is somehow able to just like snip or snoop around and find problem tissues and attack them. And that, that becomes how it lands up on, you know, gets on the beach and sets a, a beachhead and begins attacking you. And so fitness is always a good idea. It's really, it's the stuff our moms told us, right? Which is get good sleep, avoid stress, get good exercise and get sunlight, by the way. Vitamin D is yeah. associated with better protection. So I, I swim outside, I jog outside. You, you want to do all these things. If, if when I back, worked back at Pfizer, I thought about it. I was like, my God, if I could bottle exercise, it would be a blockbuster <laughs> because it is so good for you. Yeah. And, it's, and it, it's so silly that we spend so much time on all these various medicines to try to correct something where you can prevent it up front by getting good exercise. So absolutely, I think that's important. I, I think what you've brought up, 
It's funny, I haven't really heard about that before, but it's a really good idea, which is to try to say, hey, look, we actually should create national efforts to improve exercise and just make that as, I mean, you imagine this, the cost savings, like as a rational actor, it would reduce the medical burden of the whole nation if everybody spent more time celebrating exercise and encouraging it, you'd, you'd have a healthier population and they'd spend more time building new things rather than fixing broken selves. So I'm a huge advocate. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think people that are advocating for it now for this pandemic specifically, it's just, it's a little bit too late. We missed the ball on it, but it doesn't mean that people shouldn't continue to spread uh, the good word about exercise and health, nutrition, you know, all these different types of things so that maybe we are better prepared for the next pandemic right now. Yeah. Uh, we do need upfront uh, solutions in, yeah. in regards to some of the the vaccine the, the vaccines and then also the antibody therapies that you're sort of creating. And I heard something interesting um, from my friend Erin uh, Kamalo at New Jersey Health and Kids, where uh, she said uh, essentially obesity is the um, the long term killer, and yeah. co- coronavirus is the short term killer. So. And that really just resonated with me because it makes so much sense when it comes to this and do everything you can to sort of fight against this this, uh, this disease through your own methods of, like you said, stress management, uh, vitamin D, exercise and nutrition. So, man, it, this was so, super insightful. I, I think my audience is uh, and the whole CBG team is really going to love listening to this podcast. And, uh, you know, Hey, after that antibody therapy is ready to go, and uh, maybe after you sell your next company, you start your new company, we'll have you back on the podcast, and you could uh, talk to us about some other stuff that uh, it's a little bit more uh, happy, let's say. Sounds sounds good. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on, and uh, stay safe, everybody. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Glanville. We will will chat with you soon. Uh, If you guys want to, you know, go ahead, subscribe. Uh, we're on all platforms, iTunes, Spotify. And if you need to find us, we're at consistencybreedsgrowth at gmail.com or CBG Online Sports on Instagram. All of you, be safe. Happy New Year. And we'll talk to you soon.